Let's just put everything else aside for a moment and let's just prepare our hearts and, and our minds to just to receive communion tonight and, and just to begin to ponder the awesome sacrifice and the price that, that Jesus made on, on our behalf. God, tonight we gather here under the banner of your love to celebrate your mercy and your grace, to celebrate the, the ultimate sacrifice that was paid so that we could have life and that we could have it more abundantly. Lord, tonight in everything that we do and everything that we say, we just want you to be glorified tonight because you deserve all the glory and you deserve all the honor. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Imagine, Will, if if you're with me tonight, Good Friday. It represents the day that Jesus was betrayed and the day that Jesus gave his life so that we could in turn have life. Imagine just a week ago as Jesus made his way into the city for Passover that the multitudes gathered and they they waved palm branches and they laid down palm branches and he rode in on a donkey and he rode in almost as a king. And all of Jerusalem celebrated the coming of the Messiah into the city. And it's, it's really hard for us to fathom how just a few days later that such a triumphal entry and such a, just a pageantry really, that they went over and beyond. It wasn't that they were just excited that Jesus came to Jerusalem. They honored him as a king. They honored him as the Messiah. And they said, glory to God in the highest, you know. And they laid the palm branches down and he rode through the city. And imagine as Jesus rode through the city streets that day. Can you imagine what was on his mind? Knowing that just in a handful of days that the crowds would turn. That all the praise would go away and it would turn into an angry mob that sought his execution. Can you imagine what that must have been like for him making his way through the streets of Jerusalem that day as he knew the entire time that he was drawing closer to the biggest event and the biggest test really of his life to that point. You know, it's that piece of the narrative of the, of the Easter message, of the Good Friday message that we always overlook Because we just assume that Jesus was God and that this task that was set before him was easy. But in reality, if we read the Gospels for their own words, we see that this week was anything but easy for Jesus. You know, as much as he was God, he was also man. And you can imagine what his flesh must have thought, his humanity that he clothed himself in to become one of us, the Bible says, that he clothed himself in humanity and to think and to imagine what the human side of him would have thought knowing what was coming. You know, the cross was no stranger to anyone living in that time. It wasn't that this was something new that Jesus had just encountered in fact, uh, a couple of years ago, the History Channel did this, albeit semi-controversial theologically, um, story of the Bible that they went through. Um, and for the most part, it was, it, was pretty, it was pretty awesome the way it was done. But there was one part of that 
story that they, the way they did it for, for TV that really stuck out in my mind. And it's Jesus and his family returning from Egypt after the, the angel had come and told Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born to take him and flee to Egypt for his safety. And so Mary and Joseph are returning back home. And as they're making their way back home, there's this moment in that show where they come in this part of the desert and there's three people, not together, but three people spread out that have been crucified. And you see them look at that and they, they're kind of nervously walking through the area, you know, hoping that no one's going to come and, 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 you know, do anything to them. And there's this moment where the camera focuses his face on like a 12-year-old Jesus almost. And he's sitting on the donkey and he looks directly at this person who's hanging on a cross there's this moment that you kind of see that they want you to think about this foreshadowing in his life of that this was to come. So the whole idea of what crucifixion looked like, what it meant, all the details of the cross, Jesus was very familiar with. He understood the brutality that he was going to face. He understood the horror. In fact, he probably had encountered someone in his life at some point that had been crucified. But he knew that he had to do it because there needed a relationship that had to be repaired. In the book of Hebrews, chapter number 9 and verse 22, it says this. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And you see under the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, and and up until this point, we see that in order for there to be forgiveness of sin, we see that the priest would have to go once a year. They'd have to go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence existed on earth. And they would have to go inside there and they would have to make a sacrifice for all of Israel for their sins once a year. Can you imagine the the size of sacrifice we would need today? (laughs) We wouldn't have any cows left in, in all of America to atone for where we are today. But without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And ever since the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, this relationship between God and man had been severed. And there had to be a way for that relationship to be brought back the way we were created to be. And that's in communion and perfect relationship with God. But the only way that that could happen was for there to be the perfect sacrifice. And God saw fit for you and for me and for all of humanity to send his son to die so that what had been lost could be restored. As the celebrations in Jerusalem for Passover had begun, the people had joyously received Jesus as he entered. He knew it was a matter of time before those crowds left and the disciples ran and hid. He knew one of his 12 would deliver him into the hands of his enemies. And as the followers of Jesus were preparing for that Passover meal, can you imagine what was going through his mind knowing how close he was to meeting his fate? The story in the Gospels really switches gears after, after Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem He spends some time teaching. And then the famous story of the woman at Bethany that anoints his feet with perfume. And it's right after that story in the Gospels that we see the plot 
to kill Jesus really unfold by the religious elite in Jerusalem. And that's the part where Judas sets up his betrayal of Jesus. You know, as we read this story and as you think on it, the question that's always stuck in my mind is, why would Judas betray Jesus? You know, and, and Bible scholars have debated through the years as to what that means and, you know, how that plays out into the story. You know, did he, was this some divine setup that it was, you know, Judas's ultimate destiny that he was, you know, called by God to deliver Jesus in order for God's plan to be fulfilled so he really wasn't a bad guy or he really was a selfish bad guy and, you know, God used that to, to you know, to do this. What really was the motivation for Judas to betray a man that he had abandoned everything that he had to follow, just like the other 11? Why now? Well, the Gospels give us some clues as to who Judas was as a man. And the Bible gives him the surname Iscariot, which Iscariot, that surname means of Sicari which was a group of revolutionists in the time. They were also known as zealots. And now the zealots, their whole mission, their whole idea as an organization was basically to, to see to it that Roman rule was eradicated out of Israel at the time. They wanted the Romans gone. And so they were busy you could almost kind of call them the semi-terrorist organization at the time. They were always trying to stir up an up uh, a rebellion or some sort of trouble to, to, to sort of, you know, sleight of hand. Get the Romans involved over here so they could do something over here. They were constantly pushing and seeking and trying to gain support to get to this role of getting rid of the Romans and turning Israel back over to the Jews. So we know that Judas is associated with this group of people. And most scholars would tell you they believe that Judas really did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That he thought that he had found the, 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 the prophecy had been fulfilled and Jesus was it. The problem was Judas was looking for a Messiah to come and overthrow Rome. Not the Messiah that Jesus was. So as Judas begins to, to, to walk through the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and all the crowds are gathered, can you imagine in Judas's mind what he was thinking? This is it. This is it. The entire city is pumped up. This is it. This is our time. We're going to strike. This is it. Everybody's ready to go. And here's the thing. This was Passover. And we all know what Passover represents to the Jewish people. That was the day that the Passover lamb was sacrificed and they put the blood over the doorways when they were in captive in Egypt and that the death angel would pass over and spare their family. So it was really a foreshadowing of that lamb's blood that was going to save them from the death angel. That Jesus would, again, basically be the same thing. So it's always ironic that all these things happen during the time of Passover. So at Passover, the entire city of Jerusalem, um, Jews from all over the world that have left the area have come back home for Passover. So the city is absolutely jam-packed with people. It's overrunning. It's overflowing. People are everywhere. And Jesus is a pretty famous guy at this point. People have heard about him. They're excited about him. So Judas sees all this happening. And in his mind, he's thinking, this is it. We have all these people here. Everyone's just, they're, they're ready to go. All Jesus has to do is say, let's kick out Rome and it's going to happen. Well, then after Palm Sunday, Jesus is teaching. 
one of the Pharisees attempted to trap Jesus. And there's this little famous phrase that comes out. And Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And Judas begins to hear Jesus say a few other things. And suddenly it clicks in Judas's mind that Jesus is not the Messiah that he was looking for. So Judas came up with this plan. And he would turn Jesus over to the religious elite to let the Sanhedrin have their trial, to let them interrogate him and interview him. And in turn, as soon as the crowds had heard that Jesus had been arrested, the crowds would turn. And the crowds would be willing to do whatever it took to save their beloved Jesus. But Judas was wrong. He underestimated what the Sanhedrin really wanted to do. And the Bible talks about in the Gospels, if you, if you really take the time and read through, where it, when Judas finds out that they're taking Jesus to Pilate, that's the moment where he returns the money. The, one of the Gospels says he throws the money and says, this is not what I signed up for. And then he runs out and he kills himself. If you're betraying someone because... You're tired of them. You don't think that they're the right guy for the job. You don't want to be a part of the following anymore. You don't kill yourself after you find out. Judas realized that his plan wasn't going to work. Because God had a greater plan. It never was about Roman occupation. It never was about seeing Israel restored. It was never about any of that. It was about making sure that the relationship from that point forward between God and humanity could be restored So that we could walk in covenant relationship with God and that he could walk with us in return. How many times have we betrayed Jesus because he wasn't the Messiah that we were looking for? See, oftentimes in our life, we want to do what Judas did with who Jesus was. We want to put God in this box. We want to put Jesus in this box. And we want to say, it's got to look like this. It's got to fit inside of this box. And if it doesn't fit inside that box, it's not the Messiah that I'm looking for. And so we see time after time, we see issues in church and we see issues in people's lives because people want to fit Jesus inside of this container that cannot contain him. And it's about our own agenda. It's about our own selfish desires. It's about us sometimes even, even wanting permission, right? If we can fit God into the box that we want him to fit in, then we don't need permission, right? We can justify everything that we're doing, everything that we're saying, our actions, our points of view. We can justify every bit of that because we have this box that God fits in. And that's what Judas was really trying to do the night that he betrayed Jesus. For centuries, the church has looked at Judas as the worst criminal, you know, when they used to do the passion plays and they would do the part where Judas would throw the money, you know, and then he would go and he would, you know, either they would, you know, show him kind of hanging himself or whatever it was implied. And then the people would erupt in, you know, in applause. Yay, the bad guy's dead. It's like, this is not a Western movie. The bad guy didn't get sunk at that point. Judas was trying to do what so many of us are guilty of in this room tonight. I'm guilty. You're guilty. We're all guilty of betraying Jesus, his lordship, because we attempt to put him in a box to fit what we want. For him to be the the Messiah that I need at this moment, you got to fit in this box. For him to be the Messiah that you need at that moment, we put him in that box rather than understanding the breadth that it's not just about Roman occupation, right? 
which was Judas's number one issue. And whatever your number one issue is in your life tonight, we can't take Jesus and put him in that box just so that our need can be met. We have to understand the greater good. We have to understand the bigger picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. After that Passover meal that we know today is the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples went out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray before Jesus would be arrested. And I've been to Israel several times in my life, and of all of the sites and of all the the streets and of all the places that you can go, the one place for me personally that I thought was the most amazing piece of the trip was the Garden of Gethsemane. Everywhere else, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, if you haven't, everywhere else you go, there is a Byzantine or a Catholic church that's been built over the spot where something supposedly happened. So you go and you're like, sweet, this is going to be awesome. This is Bethlehem. This is where Jesus was supposedly born. And you walk in, there's this mammoth church with gold stuff everywhere. And you're like, eh, cool. And it's kind of disappointing. Especially when you're considering that Jesus was born in a, in a cave where the animals slept. God didn't come into the world with gold and all this other stuff, so why we decided to do it for him is beyond me. But one of the most untouched places in the Holy Land is Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. And the reason is, is it's, it's actually an olive orchard, and it's been there for like 2,300 years. The same trees, the same dirt, same rock. It's amazing when you walk up there and they tell you these trees are literally over 2,000 years old and you look back across and you see the city of Jerusalem behind you and you realize as you walk through that garden that this, these trees are the same trees that Jesus saw that night. These aren't new trees. These aren't trees that look like the trees. When Jesus, these are the, this is it. This is the closest you're going to get. And when I realized when you stand there and you look back across at that city, and, and I thought, I spent like two and a half hours there just reflecting and thinking about what was going through Jesus' mind that night as he looked back across at the city, knowing what was coming. But on the way to that garden to pray, Jesus has this conversation with Peter. And Peter declares to Jesus that he's like, I'm willing to die. I'm willing to go to jail. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm with you. I've got your back. Like, don't worry. Like, we're in this thing together. And this is where you know that Jesus is God. Because if it was any of us, and knowing what was going to happen, we'd have been like, yeah. Yeah, Peter, you definitely got my back. I appreciate it, bud. Um, Let's talk about that tomorrow and see where you are. But Peter tells him, I am going to die if that's what it takes to be with you. And then Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me. And after Jesus is arrested and taken away to the temple courts, Peter just didn't deny Jesus, being a follower of Jesus. He went as far, the Bible says, not only to curse out the people who who were challenging him, But he denied even knowing who Jesus was, period, full stop. I've never even heard of this guy. How could he switch his mentality so fast? From just a couple of, I mean, we're not talking days. We're talking like an hour or two. 
They're going out after the meal into the garden to pray. They're there for a short time. Here comes the arrest of Jesus. The disciples run, and he's taken to the Sanhedrin with the high priest court, and Peter's sitting outside the high priest court, the very first stop. And that's when people are like, hey, aren't you with him? No, 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 no. What are you talking about? And he gets so agitated that he curses them and then says, I don't even know who he is. Who is he? And we look and we say, how in the world can your mentality change so fast? But in reality, if we look at who we are, we realize that most of us in here have done the exact same thing. And not only have we denied Jesus and we've denied his lordship in our lives, we've denied him what he's asked us to do or what he wants us to do. We've denied knowing him, denied even, I don't have nothing to do with him. And we're all connected to the cross. Each of us, through our collective sins and our transgressions, for the betrayal that we've done, for the times that we've denied him, that connects us all to the story of what Good Friday is really all about. The Bible says in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 41, and this is when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says, He, Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw. Now, depending on how good of an arm you have, that'll give you a pretty good idea of about how far he was from the disciples when all this takes place. Some of you, that would be about as far as me to you. Others of us, that might be out in the parking lot. And he says, that he knelt down and he prayed, and he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You know, and in this, this little portion of Scripture right here, we stop right here in verse 42. Father, if you're willing, if you are willing. You see, in this moment, this is where Jesus' humanity is really starting to kick in. Okay, we're getting really close here. You know, if you've ever played sports or you've ever, you know, when you got married or any of those big thing, like events like that, as it gets closer and closer and closer to the time, you start getting like really anxious and you start getting really nervous and you're like, okay, oh, I don't know what to do. You know, I, the day I got married, I was like a disaster. Like I was awesome until like 20 minutes before and I'm like, oh, what am I doing? Like, is this good? I don't know. I don't know. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> you know, and you're doing all that kind of stuff. And then the anxiety builds up. And so that's what's happening to Jesus. He's found himself in the garden. He knows that Judas is going to betray him in just a few minutes. He knows it's coming. He knows the cross is coming. And the humanity part of him takes over that human side. And he begins to pray. And he says, Father, if there's anything else that we can do, there's got to be. You are God. There has to be another way. There has to be something else that we can do. There has to be another way to accomplish your will. But not my will. In other words, I don't want to do this. You can't blame him. And then it says in verse 43, this is the part I love. It says, And then there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And they've actually, doctors and scientists have actually analyzed this piece of scripture and talked about what this actually looks like. That when, when we as humans, if we get under... A, and a lot of stress, like I'm talking a lot of stress, that, that capillaries 
in your forehead will actually start to rupture the more tense that you get. And so it says that Jesus began to pray more earnestly. That he, I mean, he's, can you imagine, like, if you knew what you were about to face, the stress and the anxiety and knowing what he, what he was up against, that the capillaries, the blood vessels in his forehead begin to burst and, and drops of blood begin to run down his forehead because he was praying so hard. There was so much anxiety about what was coming. The human side of him was dealing with the difficulty of all this. And then during that Passover meal they had had just a few minutes before, Jesus instituted what we know today as the Lord's Supper or communion. And our servers are going to come forth and they're going to begin to distribute the elements to you tonight. And I ask as they, as they pass those elements out of communion, if you would just hold on to those um, and we'll take those together. But as they pass those out, I'm going to continue to talk a little bit more about this. After that, that Passover meal, Jesus was taken to Pilate. A Pilate was the, the Roman authority who had been sent to Jerusalem. And the zealots and, and some of these other groups that wanted the Romans out had been very effective in their missions and a lot of the other governors had failed and they had not been able to successfully drive out these rebellions and so Caesar sent the most ruthless and the most hardcore governor that he had of all of his governors to Jerusalem and he basically told Pilate this when he sent him to Jerusalem he said the following if these rebellions are not put down, if there's one more issue in Jerusalem, you will pay for it with your life. And so Pilate was very determined. Very determined. So they took him to Pilate and the crowds began to turn on Jesus at that point mainly because the religious leaders had begun to yell as Pilate brought him out and said, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. Why do you bring him to me? What has he done? And the Sanhedrin council and the high priest and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they began to yell, crucify him. Release Barabbas, crucify him. And the crowds begin to catch on and they begin to chant the same thing. The same crowds that just a few days earlier had praised him and hailed him as a king. So the Romans took him and they whipped him, scourged him, form of punishment, hoping that that would ease the crowd. Now, when we say that they whipped him, we have to really understand what that looks like. I'm going to pray and that these gentlemen are going to begin to pass out the elements to you. I want you to hold on to those as we continue to talk a little bit about what Jesus did for you and for me. Father God, we thank you tonight for your shed blood and what you did so that we could have life. God, we thank you so much that you loved us enough and you cared us enough to send us your best. And God, we ask right now that you would bless tonight and that you would bless this word as we go forth. Let us prepare our hearts and our minds to receive.
what you want from us tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys can begin. When they whipped Jesus, the Romans used a whip that was known as the cat of nine tails. And it was nine long leather straps. And down each one of those legs, all the way down, they would braid and tie into those pieces of glass that had been broken, pieces of animal teeth, animal bone, basically anything that would cut you. Anything they could find, even little pieces of metal and just anything, rocks that had been sharpened. And they would tie those into the leather down each of those nine strands. And they would tie that person with their hands like this. And they would tie their body over a stone pillar. And that soldier would begin to hit. And with every strike of that whip, what would happen is that glass and that bone and all of those things that had been braided into that whip, they would catch into the flesh and into the muscle and into the tissue. And it would literally just grab like that and just stick. And then they would literally have to do this. Like when you, when you get your fishing hook caught in something and you're trying to get it out. And it would literally, as they would do that, it would literally rip away flesh and muscle from his back. Time after time they would do that and each time that they would hit, it would penetrate deeper because of the damage that had been inflicted by the strike before. And in fact, it would get so bad that, that organs would begin to fail. Liver function would begin to cease. The kidneys would begin to fail. And there's all these catastrophic biological things that would begin to happen to the body because this wasn't just, you know, this was awful. In fact, most people believe that if they would have hit him just a few more times, they probably would have killed him right there on the spot. They inflicted the most amount of damage that they could so that everyone watching would see, okay, is this good enough? And the crowds wanted more. Sanhedrin wanted more. So they still began to chant, crucify him, crucify him. So finally, Pilate says, have your way. He washes his hands of the matter and says, his blood is on your hands. And it's amazing as the crowd's response when he says, the blood is on your hands, they said, give it to us. We'll take it. It's on our hands. So they took a a plant that today we know is the crown of thorns that grows in the Middle East. And it's a stalk of a plant about this big around, about this long, the stalks, and it's just filled with thorns. About this long. Just thorn after thorn after thorn. Not like a rose bush, just thorns everywhere. And they would take these and they wove them. They're real pliable and bendable. And they made it into a makeshift crown and they shoved it into his head. Those thorns dug into his scalp and into the side of his head and blood began to flow. His forehead would swell and begin to bleed. It would swell so much that it would cover up the thorns and then would just, can you imagine the pain of that coupled with what had already been done to his back? He forced him to carry a cross through those dusty streets with stairs everywhere and rocks in the, in the crowds. And they pushed him and they made fun of him as he went through the city. He got outside the city gates. And they laid him down. And 
they took seven to eight inch long nails and they drove them through his wrists, his hands, through his feet. And they would raise the cross up. We've all seen so many times in whether it's in the Passion of the Christ or some other movie or, or something cinema that's been made, a drama that's shown us what this looks like. But a lot of times, even in the, the, the graphic nature that the, the Passion of the Christ had and how much it showed and how hard it was to look at that, that, that only is a fraction of the horror, of the pain that was inflicted. The thing that was the probably the worst part of the cross was the death. Because you hung there and you basically would suffocate. Because gravity would take over and would begin to want to pull you down. And so in order for you to breathe, you have to be able your chest has to expand and you, when you're standing and you have like try to breathe like this and you have to they would have to push themselves up so in the very wound that was driven through his feet that held him to that cross he would have to push not about you but I've gotten a splinter before it's a little tiny splinter in my finger and the next day you know you're not thinking and you put a little bit of pressure where that had been and you're like ow man that hurts that's a splinter in my finger and it draws that kind of a reaction but here Jesus hangs nailed with his feet and his hands to this cross and with every breath that he takes he has to push himself up on that wound through his feet and through his hands and it's moving and it's oh the pain and not to mention the fact that his back has been beaten to the point that he was probably even unrecognizable as a person and his back is open and every breath that he took his back would rub up against that crude wood and this wasn't a lot of the crosses like this cross up here it's so beautiful it's all shellacked and nice and smooth these were basically trees that had been cut down and some of the bark taken off so it's rough it's hard there's no there's, there's nothing smooth or nice about it his back rubbed and all that bark just continuing to pour into those wounds in his back just the agony that he went through. And this would go on for hours and hours and hours as these people who were crucified would fight death. And eventually, they wouldn't be able to, to breathe anymore. They wouldn't be able to push up anymore. They didn't have the energy left. They didn't have the strength left to push up for that one last breath. And so what would happen is they would eventually die. And it took hours hours and hours. It took Jesus six hours to die. Which astonished Pilate when they came and gave him the news that Jesus had died. He was astonished at how fast that he had died. But everything that was done on that day was done so that the prophecies could be fulfilled in the Old Testament. Jesus gave us away during that Passover meal and he was trying to foreshadow to his disciples what was coming. Luke chapter 22, beginning of verse 14, it says this, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. 
And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread and he broke it. And he had given thanks. He gave it to them and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And tonight, we have a small token small piece of bread that we use as remembrance for his body that was broken so that we could have life and what tonight is all about is about us remembering what Jesus did for you and for me what he did for everyone that you know he took that bread and he broke it and he gave thanks Father God tonight we thank you that you were willing to give your body, to sacrifice your body so that we could be free. We thank you for that. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let us eat together. The Bible says in the same manner he took the cup. And he said, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And that covenant is what tonight is really all about. It's about what Easter is all about. The cup, it's all about a new covenant. Before the cross and the shedding of blood, we talked about before that that covenant that was made with Abraham. It was only for the Jews. And every year they would go and make that sacrifice. And the funny thing about that is that when they would, the priests would go in on the Day of Atonement, the Bible says they would tie bells around their ankles and a rope. And the priest would go in to make the sacrifice. And the priest would have to go through all these rituals to cleanse himself, to be able to go into the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence existed. And the reason they would tie the rope around his ankle and the the bells was that when the priest would go past that curtain, that they would listen. And if they heard the bells stop moving, it meant that the priest had stopped moving that he was found unworthy to be in the presence of God and he would die. And so since no one else had consecrated themselves or was prepared to go in, they would have to pull him out of the Holy of Holies with the rope. That's how serious being in the presence of God was. That it took not just someone going through a ritual and, 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 and preparing themselves that there was a chance that you would die if you walked in there to make the atonement on behalf of the rest of the people. But what's so amazing is that on that day when Jesus said those famous words, it is finished. And the Bible says that he gave up his life, that he died. That at that very moment that the, the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom that veil that separated humanity and separated everybody else from the presence of God was torn in two. 
Now, when we, when we visualize that in our heads, we don't really understand what this looked like. This curtain was 40 feet tall and was like seven inches thick. So any of you who sew or you do anything with fabric, imagine the pair of scissors you would need to cut through that piece of fabric. Massive. And 40 feet tall. And it ripped from the top to the bottom right in half. Fell away. Because what Jesus had promised that night before was coming true. That this blood represents a new covenant. That now you and I have the awesome ability that we can walk, the Bible says, to walk boldly into the throne room of grace and to petition God. That we can walk boldly, just as we are tonight, into God's presence and that we can say, Abba, or Father, Daddy. And that God accepts us. Why? Because he doesn't see the collective sin and the the transgressions and the failures that you and I have. The only thing that he sees is he sees that blood that was shed that paved the way so that you and I can walk boldly into the presence of the very creator where before we weren't worthy. We would die if we were in the presence of God. But because of what Jesus did, that bond that had been separated had now been restored and made whole. If only, as the Bible says, we confess our sins and believe that he is Lord. And tonight, just as Jesus took that cup on that last supper and he said, this cup is poured out, is the new covenant in my blood. He said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Let us drink together tonight. Lord, we thank you for that price. We thank you for the cup and we thank you that this this juice tonight represents the blood that you were willing to shed so that we could be known as a son and a daughter. And God, tonight we are just in awe of your mercy and your grace. That you loved us enough that as your word says that while we were still yet sinners, that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you and we love you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. As Chris and them sing this song, let's just take a moment tonight. You can stand if you want. You can lift your hands. You can bow your head. You can turn around and kneel. Whatever it is. But tonight is all about reflecting and remembering and celebrating. That's why we call it Good Friday. The horror of the cross. That pain that he endured, he did it because he loves you and he loves me. We thank you for that blood. What a sacrifice that saved my life. The blood is our victory tonight. It's in that shed blood that we can stand here tonight as a son and a daughter and be counted blameless. And the amazing part of this entire story, this entire narrative, is that the story does not end tonight. And tonight is only the beginning. Because that sermon preached so long ago is so emphatically stated, but Sunday's a coming. And this Sunday is Easter, and we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We want you to invite someone to that so that they know 
We're going to have an Easter egg hunt for the kids. And, you know, Good Friday is such an odd name for a day that's dedicated to remember someone being tortured and killed. A lot of people, that sounds like, why do you call it Good Friday? It's awful. There's nothing good about that story. Actually, it is good because Friday paves the way for that new covenant where God and man could be in relationship again, where we get to stand restored in God's presence, not because of anything that we've done, not because we've gotten it all right, but actually the opposite, because we've gotten it all wrong and Jesus got it right, that we get to be right. And that's the awesomest part of this whole story. I don't even think that's a word, awesomest. But it is, it's awesomest. It's the awesomest part of the story. It's the most awesome. It's totally cool. It's so amazing that Jesus loved you enough to do this. I like a lot of you in here, but I don't like you that much. Nor do you probably like that humanity that Jesus faced that night in the garden. And he said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus paid it all. He paved that way so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. As we prepare to close tonight, as somber as Good Friday feels sometimes, it's healthy for us to remember what that really looked like, what the Savior really endured for that free gift for you and I. But we get to get excited because it doesn't stop there, that Sunday is a coming. And Sunday we're going to talk about why we believe this crazy story in the first place. And it's going to be awesome. Let's close tonight in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your presence here. We thank you for all that you've done and that all that you're going to do. And Father, we pray and we believe right now for Sunday service on Easter. Lord, we know that people come to church who haven't ever been to church before. We know that people come that haven't been to church in a really long time. And God, it is our sincere prayer tonight that you would draw in those that need to be here Sunday. And God, we know that you're already beginning to prepare the hearts of those that have been invited and those that are going to be here that aren't normally here. And God, we ask this right now, that you would begin to soften their hearts, to hear the gospel, to understand who you are and that you love them and that you care for them and that you desire to be in relationship with them. And tonight, as a body together, we believe And we give you thanks already for the miracles that are going to happen on Sunday morning because we're believing that people are going to give their hearts to Jesus on Sunday in this place, in this place. And we'd agree together today, tonight, that we believe that that's going to happen. And we are going to do our part to present and to live out the gospel in front of them. And God, we ask right now that you would do what only you can do because it's not with the enticing words of men that hearts and lives are changed, but it's only through the presence and the spirit of Almighty God. And so we invite your presence here. And we invite your presence here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Make sure you're here Sunday and don't come empty-handed. You better bring somebody with you. We're taking notes. (laughs) Amen. Have a good night and God bless you. We'll see you on Sunday.